You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Thank you, everyone, for joining us today. I'm Heather Ashby, Senior Program Officer in the Center for Russia and Europe at the U.S. Institute of Peace. The United States Institute of Peace is a national, nonpartisan, independent institute founded by Congress and dedicated to the proposition that a world without violent conflict is possible, practical, and essential for U.S. and global security. I have a few housekeeping notes as we begin. This conversation is being recorded. If you speak, your voice and Twitter handle will be part of that recording. The recording will be made available for replay on Twitter. and We will also publish it as part of our USIP events podcast series, which is available on our website, usip.org, and on major podcast platforms. We may use the recording on other platforms as well. Start with a few questions for Ambassador Bill Taylor and then open up for questions from the audience. If you would like to submit a question, please send a direct message to at USIP, and that's USIP, or reply in the thread. We'll be moderating speaker access to the conversation flowing, so asking questions via DM or reply is the best way to get involved in the discussion. You can also note this event with the hashtag UkraineUSIP. All right, let's get started. The space is the first in what will be a monthly series on understanding Russia's role in conflicts, how that impacts peace and security, and what role the international community can play in supporting civil society and governments impacted by these conflicts. Today, we are joined by Ambassador Bill Taylor. Uh, Ambassador Taylor is USIP's Vice President for the Center for Russia and Europe. Prior to joining USIP in 2019, he served as Charge D at the U.S. Embassy in Kyiv. During the Arab Spring, he oversaw U.S. assistance and support to Egypt, Tunisia, Libya, and Syria. He served as the U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine from 2006 to 2009. Ambassador Taylor also served as the U.S. government's representative to the Mideast Quartet, which facilitated the Israeli disengagement from Gaza and parts of the West Bank. He served in Baghdad as the first director of the Iraq Reconstruction Management Office from 2004 to 2005, and in Kabul as coordinator of international U.S. assistance to Afghanistan from 2002 to 2003. Ambassador Taylor was also coordinator of U.S. assistance to the former Soviet Union in Eastern Europe. He earlier served as of Senator Bill Bradley. I'm incredibly excited to speak with Ambassador Taylor today and for everyone here to hear his responses, ideas, and comments. Uh, which are always so rewarding. And so thank you, Ambassador Taylor, for joining us today. Heather, it's an honor. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for having me. All right, wonderful. And so we'll go ahead and dive into the first question. And as a reminder, uh, please feel free to direct message at USIP with your questions. So Ambassador Taylor, we are now in the fourth month of this tragic war. Can you discuss why it is important that the international community and particularly the U.S. doesn't become accustomed to what Ukrainian First Lady Elena Zelenska described as Ukrainians' grief. So, Heather, this is the right question. This is exactly the right question for right now. Um, we were all riveted um, to what was going on in Ukraine uh, at the beginning on the 24th of February and for the several months after that while the Russians uh, uh, invaded um, unprovoked, unjustified. Uh, we were horrified. The world was horrified. Uh, we watched as the, uh, as the Ukrainians and the Ukrainian military fought back against this Russian invasion. 
Um, and indeed, um, in those first months, uh, uh, succeeded and 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 pushed the Russians back uh, away from their capital Kiev, back into Russia and Belarus. Um, and and we were all watching that success of these Ukrainians. Uh, the Russians were bloodied there north of Kiev. Uh, they've been regrouping now. Um, and now gets, gets, this gets to your question about uh, about Ukrainians grief. Now the Russians are focused on a much smaller area, a much smaller target, a much smaller goal. Um, the Russians now are concentrating in the eastern part of Ukraine, and we know is Donbass. It's two, two of the oblasts in Ukraine, Donetsk and Luhansk, together known as Donbass. And, and the Russians are focused there. Indeed, they're focused on, on just right now one city, two cities, uh, Severodonetsk. We read about this in the paper, and Lysychansk. And they are massing their forces, many of the forces that they that they tried to take Kiev in the north have been brought around to the uh, to the eastern eastern battle, um, and they also have made some Russians have made some progress in the south. And as we know, we watched the the, the Ukrainians defend against uh, the Russians uh, surrounding and eventually taking over Mariupol. Um, again, we watched this uh, in the papers, um, but now. It's a grind. Now it's a slugfest. Now it's artillery firing in both directions. Um, and and that is out of the headlines. Um, so this gets to um, Olena Zelenska's concern um, that uh, Ukrainian grief and, and people worry about uh, a numbness, Heather, about, uh, about how we're watching this and how our attention is other things. And indeed, there are other things going on in the world, of course. Um, but this is important, and this gets to your question about why it's important not to succumb uh, to the Ukraine, the Ukrainian grief. That is that we have, why we have to maintain focus on this, and that is because it's important for not only Ukraine. Um, it's important for Europe, the United States, and the world that Ukraine win. It's important that they that they push the Russians back out of their country. Um, this is a this is a hinge. This, this could go either way. Um, and it's important um, for the future, for our security, European security, um, uh, that the Ukrainians push the Russians back out. So this will be something that we'll be watching uh, uh, and more than watching. This is something that we'll be supporting, that the United States will be supporting, that NATO will be supporting, uh, because the the recognition that, you, that how important this fight is, this battle, this conflict, this war, um, is for the future, again, not just of Ukraine, but also of Europe. So that's why it's important for us to maintain this. And Heather, I'm so glad that you're, you're taking this opportunity today to, to focus on this, attempt, this, this question. All right. Thank you, Ambassador Taylor, for those comments, as well as that powerful uh, introduction to that first question, this event, and understanding why this war is so significant, not just for Ukraine, for Europe and the international system as well. And so for my next question, it builds on a few of the comments you have just made. What role can and should the United Nations be in seeking a resolution to the conflict and ensuring that wars of aggression like this one do not happen again? This is a great question. This is a great question. So the United Nations, in particular the Security Council, um, is supposed to be the international organization that can prevent wars, uh, indeed, that can respond to threats of wars. 
um, and that can deter wars because the United Nations Security Council is where uh, actions can be taken on behalf of the international community to stop wars. Um, and in this case, it has failed. Um, the United Nations Security Council has failed. Um, there's no denying it. Um, uh, this is the organization that was meant to stop these wars and Russia invaded Ukraine. And, and when the Security Council tried just to condemn the invasion, Russia, because it has a veto, like the United States and like the like the the French and the British and the Chinese, we have we all have vetoes. The, the Russians have a veto in the Security Council. The Russians were able to veto that condemnation, that resolution that would condemn this war, this invasion, uh, unprovoked and unjustified of Ukraine. So the Security Council was stymied, um, was blocked. Um, it was 11 to 1 um, in the Security Council, uh, but that one was Russia, and because it has a veto, um, the, the resolution did not pass. Um, but Heather, your question also goes to more than just the Security Council, um, uh, and, and, and what happened next it goes to that same question, and that is, after the Security Council was blocked by the Russians, um, Ukraine and the United States and many other nations took the question to the General Assembly, the United Nations General Assembly. Uh, and it, again, it was a condemnation. The resolution of the General Assembly would have condemned, did condemn the Russians for this invasion. Um, and in the General Assembly, there are no vetoes. Uh, General Assembly, all nations um, are, are able to cast votes, and they did. And the resolution of the General Assembly uh, condemning Russia's invasion of Ukraine passed overwhelmingly, 141 to 5. There are 141 nations who voted to condemn the Russians for their invasion of Ukraine. Five nations voted against, including, of course, the Russians and the Belarusians and the North Koreans and the Syrians and the Eritreans. Uh, those five were the only ones who supported Russia. Um, the 141 nations supported Ukraine and supported the United States and supported other nations in the condemnation of Ukraine, uh, of Russia for the invasion of Ukraine. Now, people will point out that there were 35 nations in the General Assembly who abstained. They didn't, they didn't condemn the invasion. They didn't support the Russians, uh, but, and, and they abstained. And those nations like China and like India, um, and like South Africa, um, are sitting on the sidelines. They are not supporting the Russians in this invasion, but they didn't condemn Russians either. Uh, they abstained. So that's a challenge uh, for the international community to deal with that. I mean, this, Heather, your, your question gets at this. This is not hard. This is one of the clearest examples of aggression, maybe the clearest example of aggression, um, that violates international borders, that violates the sovereignty of a member state of the United Nations, unprovoked, unjustified. This is as clear as it gets. And yet the UN uh, is not able to take steps. One last thing, this is a longer answer to your question, but one last thing, let me just point out um, that the United Nations is more than just the Security Council. It's more than just the General Assembly. Um, there are a lot of 
of components of organizations um, uh, that make up the United Nations, World Health Organization, um, the, uh, the, the, the uh, World Food um, organization. There, there are or, the, the UNDP, the, the, um, the, the part of the UN that works on development, United Nations Development Program. Um, uh, so and those, those organizations, those components of the UN, they've been doing good work. They've been doing good humanitarian work, good development work, good work on, uh, on food. But we'll come back to this question about food because the Russian invasion is having a major effect on uh, world food supplies because the Russians are blockading Odessa and not letting 20 million tons of Ukrainian wheat get onto the market. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, some U UN organizations are doing some good work. But the Security Council, whose job it is to stop wars, failed. Uh, there's just no getting around that. All right. Thank you, Ambassador Taylor. And so I would note for our audience that please feel free to direct message at USIP with your questions. And so, Ambassador Taylor, uh, your points about the UN help lead into our next question. Since the UN receives a lot of attention when there is a war, violent conflict, or other global challenge uh, demanded international unity, uh, what are some of the other institutions, such as the OSCE, can or are playing a role in supporting Ukraine, Ukrainians, and even Russian civil society members who fled Russia seeking safety from persecution by Putin's regime? Because there are other international institutions, and since there are so many challenges with the UN, just try to get a sense of what other uh, institutions are out there that may be able to uh, contribute and help Ukraine and Ukrainians during this time. It's a good question, Heather. It's a good question. Uh, you mentioned the OSCE. Uh, uh, the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. Um, and, and almost all nations in Europe are members of the OSCE, um, including Russia. Um, and um, in order to take decisions and take actions, uh, OSCE has to have unanimous agreement. And so for the OSCE to actually be of assistance in this war, um, they are also stymied. Um, that is, they are not able to take actions. The OSCE is not able to take action either because the Russians will stop it. Um, the Russians are a member and uh, they will not allow. There is another institution, uh, organization uh, in Europe that can and is providing support to Ukraine. And that's NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. Uh, NATO has stepped up in a way that probably surprised a lot of people around the world. I imagine President Putin is surprised at how NATO has stepped up to support Ukraine, in answer to your question, um, in a way that, that Putin, I'm sure, did not expect to do that. President Putin, one of his arguments, I don't believe this one, but one of the arguments that he, that he made for the invasion, um, for his invasion of Ukraine, was, oh, he was worried that NATO was going to attack him, that NATO was going to attack Russia, um, or that NATO was going to, uh, or, 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 or NATO was going to put bases in Ukraine and put, put uh, weapons, uh, even nuclear weapons, in Ukraine. This is just craziness, of course. We know this, none of this is true. Um, but that was the reason, one of the reasons that, that Putin used for this invasion. Um, and what he's done, what Putin has done um, by invading Ukraine, has been to strengthen NATO. NATO has stepped up in a way that has surprised probably its own members, um, but it surprised the rest of the world, surprised Putin, as I, men as I mentioned, and has provided weapons 
surprise has uh, surprise has supplied weapons ammunition support to ukraine in a way that has really enabled ukraine to fight back um nato is also stronger more unified than it's ever been uh, i served at nato um uh in the in the late 80s early 90s i was there when the berlin wall fell and the soviet union disappeared um um, and, and, and I was there a couple of years before um, the Cold War ended uh, at NATO. And NATO at that time was only 16 nations. Um, uh, and trying to get unanimous consent, to get all 16 nations to agree on things was hard. And NATO has, has unified now, and it's 30 members now. Now there are 30 members of NATO, um, and it has agreed unanimously every time a decision was made on how to support Ukraine. Not only that, Heather, um, traditionally neutral nations like Sweden and Finland um, have noticed, how could they not, the invasion of Ukraine, have noticed that Russia is aggressive. They've noticed that Russia attacks its neighbors, noticed that Russia doesn't respect the sovereignty of its neighbors and has invaded and tried to change borders, uh, tried to annex part of it's one of its neighbors. And so the Swedes and the Finns um, have taken the lesson. Their neighbors, they are close to Russia. They see what Russia is now capable of and willing to do. And so this, this, the Swedes and the Finns have applied to join NATO. They've been neutral all this time. And, and now with this threat of an aggressive Russia that's willing to violate all norms of international behavior, um, the Swedes and the Finns have taken the logical decision to apply to NATO. Um, and uh, it's very likely, um, it's almost sure, um, that, the, that all the NATO nations um, will agree to accept Sweden and Finland in. Um, there is a question about Turkey right now, but my prediction will be that the Turks in the end will agree um, and that the NATO alliance, all 30 members, will agree to go to 32, to go to, to add Sweden and Finland. Um, uh, to the to the members. So uh, this is all to say that there is one nation, one organization, international organization, Heather, that is providing support to Ukraine, and it's NATO, and it's not it's it's not uh, UN, it's not the OSCE. All right, thank you, Ambassador Taylor. And so from that discussion about unity that you just presented, it leads into my next question: How can the U.S. and other countries hold Russia accountable for the atrocities being committed? in Ukraine by Russian soldiers. So it's, it's atrocities by Russian soldiers. It is war crimes by the whole chain of command, the whole Russian chain of command. It is war crimes by President Putin. Uh, let's, let's be clear. Um, it's not just these Russian soldiers on the ground who are com committing these atrocities and these war crimes. Um, the responsibility um, for these atrocities, these war crimes, pre that President Biden has called genocide. And not only President Biden, there have been other nations who have passed resolutions, other European nations that have passed resolutions that have come to the same conclusion that this is genocide, that the Russians are trying to wipe the Ukrainians off the map. Um, and so your question is very relevant. How to hold Putin and the chain of command uh, responsible um, for these actions, these atrocities, this ge this genocidal war, and the answer is, the Ukrainians have to win. Uh, the Russians are not going to be held accountable if they are allowed 
to take Ukraine. Um, and if they're allowed to take Ukraine, they won't stop there. Um, that's been the that's been the history of, of Russia over the centuries. They don't stop. Um, so if the Russians are allowed to win, they're not going to be held accountable. And they must be. So this goes back, Heather, to the question that you raised, and that is uh, your, the, the importance of, of why this is so important. Your first question, why it's important uh, that we keep focus on this and we continue to support the Ukraine. They must win in order to hold the Russians accountable. All right. I think there should be increasing discussions about holding Russia accountable. And so thankfully at USIP, we've been holding a series of events discussing accountability uh, for Russia during this war. And we have an upcoming event on June 28th that is open virtually to the public. So please uh, register for that event and look for future events as well. Uh, in future discussions of this series, we will dive more into the impact of the war on food and fuel prices and the resulting challenges for countries, particularly in the global South. But for this discussion, I want to ask you, Ambassador Taylor, what have you noticed about the impact of this conflict on peace and security in Europe? And you touched on it uh, in a few of the questions, but just want to highlight more of what you're thinking about in this area. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, exactly. Um, um, this is in the first instance, a Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, and the Ukrainians are defending themselves. They're defending their land and they're defending their government and their form of government, their democracy. Ukraine is a democracy. Um, there, there's no perfect democracy. Ours is not perfect, as we know. Ukraine's is not perfect, as we know. Um, there may be a perfect democracy out there somewhere, but it's, uh, it's hard to find. Um, but it's a democracy and it's defending itself. It wants to stay a democracy. It wants to stay a sovereign nation. So the Ukrainians are on the front line defending themselves against this Russian attack. They are also defending Europe. Um, and this gets to your question, Heather. The, the Ukrainians are defending Europe. Um, they are keeping the Russians right now pushed back. The Russians are having a hard time, as we talked about in the answer to your first question. Uh, they, the Russians were defeated when they tried to take over the capital and, and get rid of President Zelensky and take over the country. Uh, the Ukrainian military defeated the Russian military. Um, and the Ukrainian military is still holding on. It's harder and harder because of the concentration of the Russian forces in Donbass. But the Ukrainians are still holding on. It's getting more and more difficult. It's more and more desperate. The Ukrainians are waiting for these weapons that uh, that NATO and other nations are providing them. And the NATO and the other nations are providing these weapons because the Ukrainians are fighting our fight. The Ukrainians are defending themselves, but in that, by doing that, they're defending Europe. And they are beyond that, Heather, they are defending values. One of the values that they're defending is the right sovereign nations to be sovereign the right of nations not to be invaded by bigger bigger neighbors. Um, we don't want to live in a, in a world where big nations can dominate and invade and indeed destroy small nations on their border. That's, that's not a world we want to live in. That's a world that we lived in earlier. That's the world that our grandparents lived in. That's the world that in the previous century, the first half of the previous century, when there were two world wars, that's, that's, that's the kind of war and world that, uh, that the Russians are taking us back to, are trying to take us back to. A world where big nations can invade uh, smaller nations and wipe them off the map. We don't want to live there. 
And the Ukrainians are defending that world. They're defending, defending the, the order that we had, imp that, that had kept the peace in some real sense, at least in Europe, at least among major powers, for nearly 70 years until the Russians invaded Ukraine um, in 2014. So the, the Ukrainians are defending themselves, they're defending Europe, but they're also defending values and they're defending, defending an order that has kept the peace. Um, not perfectly. There, and we know there were smaller wars, smaller conflicts, civil wars, but that order um, where, where nations acknowledged sovereignty of other nations, nations didn't invade other nations. That order um, kept the peace and allowed prosperity since World War II. Um, and that order has been shredded um, by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So the, oh, this is a long answer to your question, Heather, it's a good one, about how Ukraine and, the, and Ukraine's defense uh, of itself and of Europe and of this, of this order um, is, is important for, for all of us. All right, thank you, Ambassador Taylor. And as a reminder for our audience, please feel free to DM at USIP with your questions. And so one final question that I have for you, Ambassador Taylor, before opening it up to the audience. You probably receive this question often, but what are the options to end this conflict? Yeah, this is a good one, Heather. This is exactly right. Um, so right now, um, we're in a grind, a, a slugfest. Um, neither side, neither the Ukrainians nor the Russians, are ready to negotiate an end to this war. Um, the Ukrainians do not want to allow the Russians to take, to dominate, to occupy part of their country. <clears throat> the Ukrainians don't want the Russians to be rewarded for this aggression by, by controlling and, get, and taking, taking over 20% of Ukrainian territory. They, the Ukrainians are not ready to give that up. They're not ready to give up their territory that the Russians are now occupying. And again, that's 20% of, of the Ukrainian territory is where the Russians are right now. So the Ukrainians are not willing to, to uh, stop now. They want to push the Russians back. And the weapons that are coming from the United States uh, and from Europe and from NATO nations, other NATO nations, are, are going to allow the Ukrainians to push the Russians back. And then, Heather, then there could be a negotiation. Once the Russians are pushed back and are willing to agree to withdraw from these lands that they now occupy, these Ukrainian lands that they now occupy, once the Russians are willing to agree to withdraw back to the lines, um, the, the lines that existed on the 23rd of February of this year, when they invaded on the 24th, the day before they invaded on the 24th, once the Russians are ready to move back and are pushed back to those lines, then there, then there could well be a negotiation. Um, and that is likely how it will end. That now, um, it's possible. Heather, there's another. There's another model, and that is the uh, the model of uh, North Korea, South Korea. There's not an. There's not a treaty. Um, uh, there's not a. There's not. A, there, there's a. There's an armistice. There's a ceasefire. Um, but this could go on for a, for a while until the Russians uh, leave Ukraine. Uh, that's that's not a. Not a happy uh, prospect, um, but uh, but it does again say how important it is for the West and for NATO uh, to support Ukraine so that they can get to that point um, where negotiations can take place. All right, 
Let's transition uh, to audience questions. And as a reminder, please feel free to direct message at USIP if your questions. Ambassador Taylor, for the first audience question, could Russia try to destabilize the Balkans to uh, also to hit also the security of Europe in another part? Absolutely. Uh, absolutely, the Russians could uh, try to destabilize the Balkans. And they, they probably are right now um, through political means. Um, the Russians uh, are meddling in the politics of Balkan states. <clears throat> They're meddling in the politics of some, uh, some NATO nations, some EU nations. Um, uh, but from a military standpoint, they, the Russians have their hands full right now with the Ukrainians. The Ukrainians, as I say, have pushed them back, have bloodied them, um, uh, and are now fighting to a standstill or a slugfest or a stalemate. Uh, that goes back and forth. Um, so right now, the Russians have their hands full, and I don't see them able to uh, take military action to destabilize the Balkans while the Ukrainians are pushing them out of their country. Uh, that said, um, if the Russians were somehow to take over Ukraine, you bet the Balkans would be vulnerable. Uh, Moldova would be vulnerable. Um, the Baltics Lithuania, Estonia, and Latvia would be vulnerable um, because, as again, we've seen in Russian history and, and nations in the Balkans, nations in the Baltics, nations in Eastern Europe know Russian history better than we do, Heather. They know Russian history much better than we do. And they know that the history of Russia is the history of autocrats that are aggressive, that are expansive. Um, that don't stop until they are stopped. And so the, the, the Balkans are right to be concerned uh, about the outcome uh, of this war. All right, we have another audience question, and this goes back to a point you made earlier in the conversation about the United Nations vote. Uh, this particular question wanted to note that if there are any future votes, would those votes be an honest vote? And were those votes an honest vote? Nations are scared of the U.S. and the West to vote otherwise. Did you notice any of that taking place in uh, your understanding of the U.N. vote that has taken place previously and future U.N. votes condemning uh, Russia's aggression? Sure. So nations, uh, and so we're, uh, we're probably talking now about the General Assembly vote, um, the one that I said was 141 to 5. And the questioner wants to know, what motivated these uh, these votes, uh, both uh, the 141 and the abstentions? Uh, I, I assume that's what the questioner is asking. Yeah, the abstentions are interesting. Um, these are nations. I mentioned uh, one nation as, a, as an example, India. <clears throat> so India buys a lot of weapons from the Russians. Uh, the Indians buy a lot of oil from the Russians. Um, so the Indians were reluctant to condemn the Russians um, um, out of fear that the Russians would stop selling them weapons or stop selling them oil. Um, the Chinese, as I mentioned, um, <clears throat> are in a different situation there. I don't think it's, be, uh, you know, the Chinese can make their own decisions, uh, but the Chinese are torn. Um, and they abstained because on the one hand, they had agreed before the war that they would be partners with the Russians. Indeed, uh, President Putin famously visited Beijing just uh, at the beginning of the Olympics, just before the invasion. Um, and the Chinese wouldn't support the invasion 
and didn't support the invasion. Um, but they did say that we're going to be part of the Chinese going to be partners with the Russians. Um, um, and, and yet the Chinese don't want to undermine the sanctions that the United States and Europe um, and international allies around the world um, have placed on Russia. The Chinese are not violating those sanctions uh, and they're not providing weapons um, to the Russians, even though the Russians have asked for it. So there are a lot of motivations. Um, um, and, and the question you asked, is it a free vote? Yeah, it's a free vote. Um, uh, that's not to say that there's that that's not influenced by economics or by weapon sales, um, but uh, uh, but it, certainly it's a free vote. There's there, certainly it's a free vote. Okay, thank you, Ambassador Taylor. Uh, we'll have time for two more audience questions before uh, we end this space for today. Uh, for the next question, what should be the U.S.'s objective, ideal end state for the war in Ukraine? Relatedly, is time on Russia's side or Ukraine's? So what should be the end state? <clears throat> this is a very good question. Um, and for a while, for some time, <clears throat> there was question, there was a debate, there was confusion, there was uncertainty about the, about the goal, uh, the, at least the U.S. goal. Um, and... President Biden, to his credit, um, recognized that, uh, that uncertainty. Um, and he put an, an op-ed piece in the New York Times about a month ago um, where he laid out the answer to this question uh, because it's important. That's a, it's an important question. It's important for the United States and other nations to have a goal and to be able to state it clearly. And he was, uh, he, and he did so. Um, and what he said, what President Biden said, was very clear. Um, he said, America's goal is, straight. I just happen to have it right here. America's goal is straightforward. We want to see a democratic, independent, sovereign, and prosperous Ukraine with the means to deter and defend itself against further aggression. So that's a very important statement. Uh, President Biden said, we want to see a Ukraine that's democratic, that it can make its own decisions uh, on its own leaders, it's independent, that it's not controlled by the Russians. It's sovereign and gets to make its own decisions about whether to join the European Union, whether to join NATO. Uh, it gets to make its own decisions and it's prosperous. Um, and that means it has to have the ability to, for example, export grain out of Odessa. It needs to be able to, to have a, a, a go uh, at a prosperous nation. But the second part, Heather, is also important uh, that, that President Biden put in there. It said um, a democratic, independent, sovereign, prosperous Ukraine with the means to deter and defend itself against further aggression. And what that means is that the United States wants to uh, it has a goal of, uh, of uh, Ukraine that can defend itself against further aggression from Russia. And what that means is a strong military. That means that the United States needs to provide Ukraine with state-of-the-art weapons that enables it to defend itself and deter Russians from invading again. And that deterrence is what's gonna keep the peace. Uh, so that's an important statement about, uh, uh, about our goal. All right, thank you, Ambassador Taylor. And we have one final question uh, before we have to end this Twitter space. And so this question is, how is China helping Russia in the Ukraine war? Yeah, so this is a very interesting question. The Chinese, as I mentioned earlier, uh, are in an awkward position 
uh, on the one hand, they said there's no limits to the partnership. They said that the, the partnership uh, knows no bounds. Um, and yet, um, when the Russians came to the Chinese and asked them for help getting around the sanctions um, that the United States and Europeans and other nations have placed on Russia, the Chinese have said, in essence, no. Um, we're not going to go. We're not going to uh, uh, defeat, go around, uh, countermand these these sanctions. We're not going to provide you the the microchips uh, that you need. You Russia need to uh, to, to manufacture uh, new weapons. We're not going to do that. And um, we're we're not going to provide you with weapons uh, that you that we the Chinese are not going to provide you the Russians uh, with weapons or help you evade sanctions. So the Chinese are are in a difficult situ situation. They're sitting back. Um, uh, they see their partner um, in a in a war that they don't really support. The Chinese. The other reason the Chinese are in this awkward position is the Chinese have made it clear they support sovereignty of nations. The Chinese support the inviability of borders. The Chinese don't want to see big nations invading small nations. Um, the, the Chinese agree about the UN principles of sovereignty and territorial integrity. And so the Chinese are not supporting the Russians in their invasion of, of Ukraine. The Chinese will condemn NATO and condemn the United States, but they're not Condemning, they're, they're not supporting the Russians uh, uh, when they've invaded uh, Ukraine. So it's a very interesting question that the questioner asked about, about China, and we'll see how that plays out. All right. I think we'll have to end there as we're approaching the end of this Twitter space. Thank you for joining us for this space today to all of our audience members, as well as the people who uh, provided questions for Ambassador Taylor. And we'd like to extend a special thanks to Ambassador Taylor for his time and extremely thoughtful comments about Russia's war in Ukraine and implications for the global system and peace and security. The recording will be available here on our Twitter account 30 days and we'll also be publishing a permanent recording on the USIP website as an episode of the events at USIP podcast. Find more coverage of war and its global implications on USIP's website. You can also follow Ambassador Taylor on Twitter at William B. Taylor 8. And you can also follow me on Twitter at Dr. Heather Ashby. Please visit USIP's website for more information uh, in upcoming events regarding Russia's war on Ukraine and look for details in the future about this Twitter space series. Thank you, everyone, and have a wonderful day. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.